It's time for InsureTalk with insurance industry tech geek and Guidewire chief evangelist, Laura Drabik. In this podcast series, we don't just talk about innovative ideas in PNC insurance. We talk with industry trailblazers about the big ideas they made happen and how they did it. If you're looking for insights on the trends and technologies reshaping the industry, an all-new InsureTalk starts now. Welcome to InsureTalk. My name is Laura Drabik, and I'm the Chief Evangelist at Guidewire. In this episode, I have the privilege of interviewing Timothy Papandreo, founder and CEO of Emerging Transport Advisors and a global thought leader on emerging technologies and their impacts on society. The topic of our conversation today is the decline in personalized auto and the future of insuring mobility. As cars grow smarter, more connected, and increasingly electric, a technological revolution in mobility is radically reshaping what we need and what we expect from insurers. To adapt to new realities, carriers must leverage connected data, analytics, automation, and other technologies to go where the growth is in amazing new opportunities in commercial lines and mobility as a service just around the corner. As founder and CEO of Emerging Transport Advisors, Tim prepares companies, startups, investors, and governments worldwide to seize the future of mobility. Hello, Tim. Welcome. Welcome to Insure Talk. Great to be here, Laura. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, you've led strategic partnerships at Google X Moonshot Factory, and we're a key member of the founding team behind Waymo, the world's first fully self-driving robo-taxi, trucking, and delivery vehicle AI technology. As former chief innovation officer for San Francisco's Metropolitan Transportation Agency, you implemented urban mobility technology centered on sustainability and climate resiliency. Tim, can you give us who is Tim in 60 seconds, what propels you toward the future of mobility and how you apply it at Emerging Transport Advisors? Yeah, absolutely. Tim is a crazy nerd who grew up obsessed over transportation, looking at maps of cities. I would get on my bicycle and not tell my parents where I was going, but I'd actually take the train into downtown Melbourne and just ride around the city because I was just fascinated by how cities worked. Kids wanted toys for Christmas. I wanted a street map. I don't know why, but I've always been obsessed with cities and I love how transport moves people and things. In my college years, I got into architecture and I didn't like how they just obsessed about the building and not the systems that got into it. And I was actually referred to quite derisively like oh you're a systems thinker you need to go into urban and regional planning I'm like what's that so I jumped in some classes and I was like this is amazing I love this stuff and since then I've worked on massive infrastructure projects on projects that deliver innovation to various communities and I've always been curious at the intersection of technology and policy and with infrastructure specifically think of infrastructure as the user interface for our physical world around us whether it's by car or by bus or by train or by our own two feet opportunities for employment, for education, wellness, health are connected to and by and with transportation. So it's kind of like the everything of everything. So I help companies, governments, startups and corporations navigate through this massive world of mobility and all the things that are happening to it. And I can't believe I get paid to do this. I'm so excited to be in this space. What a wonderful story. And I have to say, you know, many cities have benefited from you being a system thinker. So well done. Thank you. In the second half of this decade, 
decade, sales of L2 or partial autonomy and L3 or conditional autonomy vehicles are on pace to account for 63% and 4% of new vehicle sales. We could see entire commercial fleets of L3s and even L4s, which are high autonomy vehicles on the road pretty soon. And a lot of this will shift the burden of insurance liability from the human driver to the commercial party associated with the autonomous vehicle technology, often being the OEM. Mm -hmm. Okay, so paint a picture of what this looks like. How do you see autonomous technology evolving and integrating with our personal vehicles, public transit, and the transportation of goods by the end of this decade? That's actually a really good way to put it. It is a transition. Like people think that, oh, it's just a switch, then all of a sudden everything's changed. No, it's going to be a transition because the first five years or seven years of this next decade are really about experimentation. We're going to see some features added into vehicles, but it's the tail end of that decade where we're going to see some transformative changes. And so we should see by the end of this decade that level two or partial autonomy as features become mainstream in most vehicles that are being sold. And that whole advanced driver assisted system is basically going to become standardized in all vehicles. Most personal vehicles will have features like highway autopilot for advanced parking assistant as standard features. They won't be like high end like they are right now. Now, L3 is a little tricky because L3 requires conditional autonomy, which means that you basically can have the vehicle drive for you in most situations, but you have to still hold on to the vehicle. And that means you're in charge of the steering, braking, pedals. And so that might not come as much as we think in the personal vehicle space, but it definitely will be coming into the fleet vehicle space. Public transit is going to be interesting. We're going to see a lot more autonomous shuttles. These are the vehicles that basically connect to and from transport systems, whether they are rail or higher speed, longer distance services. A lot more autonomous shuttles will be in urban areas and offering what we call last mile, first mile connectivity. We should see a lot more public transport systems actually integrate autonomous buses, optimizing their routes based on real-time data to just to enhance the efficiency of the system and hopefully improve the frequency, which means that more people will use it and will have an impact on congestion. We're going to see a lot more autonomous technology on shared mobility, whether we're sharing vehicles, scooters, bikes, different services. They're going to use a lot more of that shared autonomous system in their fleets. And the transportation of goods is probably where we're going to see this happen and advance faster. E-commerce, as you know, is just exploding. More and more people want more goods delivered in real time, in hours, not days now. So commercialization of autonomous technology all the way up to level four, frankly, will be used for long-haul transportation, short-haul transportation, even last-mile delivery. We're going to see a growth in urban delivery drones because the majority of the packages for consumers fit inside a shoebox. They'll be mainly in metropolitan areas, not in, in urban centers, but that's where we'll see a lot of that growth as well. And then we're going to see a lot of fleet optimization. We're going to see fleets managed much more effectively using the different AI technology to help plan routes, help manage maintenance, and ensure the seamless operation of autonomous commercial vehicles. Now, to your last part, all this has a dramatic and disruptive effect on insurance and liability. As autonomy and all the levels of autonomy we just talked about becomes more prevalent, the insurance model is going to shift. Liability, as you mentioned, transitions from the individual drivers to commercial parties involved in autonomous technology. It's important to note that this is autonomous technology, not vehicles. It's form factor agnostic, which means it'll affect all of the industry. So all of the insurance instruments will be basically impacted by this. Insurance premiums should decrease for individual drivers, reflecting the reduced risk associated with autonomous vehicle fleets. So as we increase the fleet percentage and market share, we should see a reduction in individual premiums. We also will see a change in the product liability makeup. This will basically not just impact individual drivers, it's going to impact fleets, public transport insurance systems, and the goods movement as well. So we're going to 
see a massive change of this over the next decade. But again, it'll be the later end of the decade, not the beginning. Tim, there will be enormous opportunities for insurers as billions in premiums shift from personal lines to commercial lines coverage, or even back and forth between personal lines and commercial lines for drivers who might need to flip between personal use and offering rideshare services. Using the picture you just painted, how do you see AI, automation, and multimodal functionality coming into play in the next phase of mobility? I think this is where there's going to be some game-changing opportunities. First of all, AI being more of an analytical tool that in insurance becomes not just reactive but predictive. A symphony where it's conducting information from driving habits to real-time traffic patterns. This means much more personalization, much more customization, frankly, for premiums tailored to you, the driver, based on how you hit the road. Now, there's some questions there about privacy and how much you're going to opt in, but I don't know. Everything I've seen so far when people are given the opportunity to say, money based on their own behavior. Everyone thinks they're a better driver than they really are, but this gives you the opportunity to really prove how good you are on the road. So it'll democratize premiums for most people around the country. And then claims processing, all the backend stuff that is pretty admin heavy right now, that's going to become real time. We're going to see situations happen in the real world and the backend processing will basically there with you along the way. So you should be able to process claims, get decisions made, have adjudication, have basically support imagine if it's it's filmed in real time there may be opportunities to show different perspectives be like okay that looked obvious from a photograph above but now as we're seeing a different perspective we're getting a different view of what actually happened on the multimodal side we have a huge gig economy right now so the ability to navigate between personal driving and commercial driving that right now is very difficult to ensure as one system but i think we're going to figure out ways we can basically understand what is the person's role and what is their function at the exact same time and where they're switching into a commercial opportunity or a private opportunity, the insurance would be there to understand and learn and cover them. So I think that's a really exciting opportunity as well. I really like what you just said about a symphony of conducting information, which will allow us to gain more personalization and customization, as well as that seamless insurance experience from commercial flipping seamlessly to personal. And you're spot on. By 2030, over 50% of the U.S. population will be gig workers. So Experiences like this are incredibly important. Yeah, and anybody that can get their handle on this by prototyping and piloting different experiences and providing those instruments, right now, because it's so small, it could be really good test opportunities. You're going to learn and iterate along the way. You'll be able to basically seize this opportunity because I think it's going to be a huge multi-billion dollar opportunity that has literally been untapped. Yeah, it makes sense, especially the prototyping. So Tim, after the 2023 Consumer Electronics Show, you wrote in Forbes that you'd seen signs that the show may have shifted to being a little less. Now, I'm going to just quote you here, rah-rah and fairy dust to global trends of electrification, connectivity, and automation on full display, including some commercial vehicle use case applications. Now, specifically, you said the story on the show floor was very much about commercial vehicles and fleets and their support systems. The sensor, including many LiDAR company software and hardware stakes, mapping, teleoperation, and connectivity. Okay, tell us more about what you saw at last year's Consumer electronic show that excited you and what are you hoping to see more of at this year's show? Yeah, so I purposely put the rah-rah and fairy dust in there because in 
the past, the CES has been a lot of like this stuff that's like, come on, guys, this is not going to happen. Like, what are we talking about here? And it was really distracting from some of the serious players who were really showing the next level of innovation. And everybody was focused on this thing that's never going to happen. I work in moonshots. Like, I work on figuring out like global scale problems with breakthrough technology. And so I'm used to that kind of stuff. But there's clearly some things that are just literally science fiction. And so I'm much more interested in looking at the technology that goes from sci-fi to sci-fact. And that to me is really exciting. And so what I saw there was a huge emphasis on the commercial vehicle use cases. And why I thought that was really important was because it really showed a nexus with e-commerce and all of the AI and automation features that are happening inside the warehouse need the same level of focus outside of the warehouse. And that commercial connectivity piece I thought was really exciting. You know, we saw some commercial vehicles that were really cutting edge in the ecosystem from delivery vans to autonomous shuttles. And it wasn't really just about prototypes. We actually saw projects that were going into commercialization. I think what stole the spotlight was just the amount of sensor technology that was available. And again, not prototyping. This was ready to go. We saw a lot more teleoperation and high definition mapping technology there. What that means is that basically the vehicles can understand their world around them much more effectively when they have high definition mapping technology and teleoperation to give them that added feedback loop. But we saw a lot more connectivity as the backbone of a lot of the new emerging technology. And so understanding how vehicles communicate with each other, with the broader infrastructure, as I said, it's the user interface of our physical world. So the infrastructure is an important platform. But then above and beyond, there was connectivity discussions about Starlink and all of the low orbit satellite technology and really creating more precision around GPS, where right now, if you go along certain highways, enter into these dead zones where there's just no connectivity. So that latency is a big deal for commercialization of autonomous technology. But we saw companies saying that they could basically close those gaps. I'm not sure if I'm going to go this year, but I always make a decision last minute. But there's going to be a lot more discussion around AI and automation because we're not just seeing AI help us predict and analyze how to build and create infrastructure and to manage it and to maintain it and extend the life of it. But now we're actually seeing AI come forward to work with robotics. And when you marry AI with robotics, you now can build infrastructure. Google's DeepMind has basically created thousands of new materials by using AI to understand the elements table and then basically come up with thousands of new materials using material science technology. You marry that with robotics and AI and all of a sudden you can build brand new things with brand new materials that mimic, for example, spider silk. And now we've got some pretty exciting stuff. Awesome. Such great information. When we come back after this short break, we'll continue our conversation with Timothy Papandreou, founder and CEO of Emerging Transport Advisors. So stay tuned. Digging in Sure Talk with Laura Drabik? Be sure to subscribe on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, rate the show on Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Now, let's get back to the show. And welcome back to Insure Talk. This is Laura Drabik, and I'm talking with global thought leader Timothy Papandreou about ensuring the future of mobility. Okay, let's stay on this really interesting theme of the Consumer Electronics Show just for a moment. In Forbes, you wrote that several EV product displays took great effort to co-locate an e-scooter or an e-bike either next to a passenger car or on the roof or in the flatbed or folded into the truck. And as you put it, they were either greenwashing it a bit or nodding to the opportunity to provide the first last mile or recreational e-biking access to trails 
emails, etc. Probably it was both, but talk to us about why that particular notion of first or last mile opportunity is vital to the future of mobility. The first and last mile connectivity is really the missing puzzle in a lot of these big pictures around urban mobility. A lot of great things, whether it's trains, buses, even a lot of these like transport options like ride hailing and services, some of them can't get you door to door. They get you from station to station or from pick up and drop off point to pick up a drop off point. And that last mile connectivity is where the smaller vehicles, whether they are scooters or bikes or mopeds, really help you get there. The challenge is in, in seamlessly connecting these modes of transport to and from the user's origin and destination. A lot of them need physical space on the street. People don't feel safe riding these services because there's no dedicated protected space on the street. It's still mixed with like large traffic. And so understanding that if we integrate scooters and bikes into the mix, we need to address the needs of short distance travel. And that does a lot of amazing things. It gives people access to opportunity they didn't have before. It reduces congestion because people are shifting out of cars onto space. It's a geometry puzzle. There's less space needed to move the same amount of people using less energy and there's no noise, there's no emissions, that sort of stuff. And what it does, it creates this opportunity for integrating all of those different first and last mile solutions and connecting the dots between the various modes of transport and making it more seamless. And so if we can make ways that all of this can be done seamlessly and it's just as easy or just as intuitive as grabbing for your car keys, we're going to see a lot more people using these things. And we're seeing the numbers pan out. While EVs, the cars, aren't growing as fast as people thought they would, e-bikes are exploding across the US. It's doubling that of EV cars. So the demand is there for electric vehicles, but we've got to figure out the use case. Yeah, that makes sense. And with the gravitational pull towards living in cities, we'll see mobility as a service platforms arise that enable people to plan, book, and pay for multiple types of transportation options for a given trip. Ride-sharing services like Waymo or Uber or peer-to-peer rental services like Get Around, buses or trains or micro-mobility options such as e-scooters. So all of this would involve insurance policies that cover mobility journeys. And that's really different, I think, for our audience. These are mobility journeys instead of or in addition to the mobility assets. So insurance that covers a policyholder's use of their car ride to the train station as part of their morning commute, the train ride into the city, the e-bike ride from the train station to the office, and maybe a late night ride sharing service all the way home. So Tim, how do you see mobility as a service platforms in insurance really co-mobilizing, for lack of a better term? The traditional model revolves around insuring specific assets, whether it's your car, your house, whatever it is, right? But in this dynamic mobility as a service world, we're talking about insurance policies that cover the entire journey, end to end. So it's not just about the car parked in the garage, it's about how you use different modes of transport throughout the day. And it basically carries you all the way through. And that requires some sort of digital sovereignty that we haven't really developed yet, but is available in other industries. It just hasn't happened yet in the world of insurance. But I think it's going to happen because it's inevitable to be able to have that portability as you move between modes and between services. But it creates opportunities around the dynamic and usage-based policies, you know, adapts to your real-time journeys. You'll see insurance ensuring that you're covered whether you're riding a scooter, a train, or sharing a ride. So it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all, but it's going to be tailored to your specific mobility needs on an ad hoc basis. It's going to say, hey, Laura, you've touched your phone onto a scooter. Now you're riding a scooter. I've seen you enter a train station. I've seen you now starting a vehicle. And now I'm going to cover you based on this situation. That's brand new. That's novel. So this is where the magic is going to happen because mass platforms and insurance companies will be forming strategic partnerships around insurance options that seamlessly integrate with both of their platforms. And when those two platforms integrate, this magic data dust gets formed and you're going to have insights that you didn't have before, how people move around and why they choose seven services. And they'll be given opportunities to, for example, right now in Waze, you've just got this new feature of 
you're entering a high traffic collision area, I'm going to take you around to a, a safer route. That's where it becomes a secret source where these mass platforms generate a wealth of data around travel habits and preferences and insurance companies leverage the data for more accurate risk assessment. It's also going to streamline the claims process. The mass insurance integration is going to know where you were, what happened and why, which will have hopefully quicker resolution. So we have this thing called mobility as a service, but I've coined a new term recently where if we integrate all these things together, we're going to have lifestyle as a service. Whether we own things or services, they should all become under one insurance system that is basically you. And it doesn't matter whether you are going to sleep and laying in a bed or you're going to make something or you're going to ride or drive something. The insurance should always be there carrying and working with you tailored to your needs. Well, you heard it here first, folks, lifestyle as a service. And going back to your data dust, I love that. Because for carriers, that insight can lead to new product opportunities, new personalized rating, customization, new loss control measures to proactively prevent losses, and then new insurance services. So well put. So Tim, I had the pleasure of meeting you on the Guidewire Innovation Tour, and I was so impressed with your presentation on how urbanization demands transformative changes. You spoke about how past innovation shapes cities and how new technologies like generative AI, robotics and automation, 3D printing, etc., mark new technological shifts. You also said that to facilitate innovation leaps, you need to embrace system thinking, something you talked about a little bit earlier, over linear strategy. Tim, what does that mean to folks dreaming up new models for mobility and to those creating new ways to protect those new modalities? Whether it's generative AI, robotics, 3D printing, people co-living and co-working, fractional ownership of assets, all those things are going to be transformative shifts. It's not going to happen all at once. Like I've said, it's a gradual transition over the decade, but that tail end is we're going to see a lot of this happen in scale. So what does this mean for cities? Cities have to get smarter. They have to understand that their infrastructure is the platform that a lot of these technology will be working on. So we want it to be safe, energy efficient, accessible. It can't just be for the uber wealthy. One thing I always mention as well is not all innovation is technology. The majority of our innovation is in policy. And so having innovative policy, innovative laws, innovative legislation, regulation. So system thinking requires recognizing insurance needs are going to evolve in tandem with these innovations. And which means it's not just about protecting assets, but it's about safeguarding the entire journey from the first trip to the end. And that means safeguarding the person, the company that's providing services and the city that is offering that infrastructure. So we're going to see a lot more collaboration, a lot more ecosystem building. We're going to see a lot more flexible and adaptive insurance models, on-demand coverage, usage-based policies, even insurance that spans multiple modes of transport are going to become available. And the important piece is recognizing the interplay of the technologies, the modalities, and how they fit in these broader ecosystems. I call it the grand symphony of urban life, but it's really all the different things that work together. And it's really complicated, but we're getting stronger and stronger technology that's going to help us orchestrate that in a way that's optimized for the future. Tim, what about vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure and vehicle to cloud technologies used to enable autonomy? How will they work to reduce congestion or even lower traffic deaths? Unfortunately, we have 1.2 to 1.25 million fatalities every year worldwide. And so there's a real big push of maybe we could actually use vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure technology to warn the vehicle as it enters an area that, hey, this is a high crash zone, this is a high risk area, slow down or become more attentive. Those things are just starting to happen. We're seeing some startups that are 
using a lot of LIDAR technology and predictive analytics to really understand how intersections and corridors function. And this is a potential to dramatically lower annual traffic-related crashes and deaths. But I think we're going to see a lot more opportunities where real-time vehicle-to-vehicle will allow coordinated movement. It should reduce the risk of collisions. It should optimize traffic flow. But if it's cars, we can only optimize so much because they're just physically large vehicles. If we can use vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure technology to get people to not drive their own cars, to basically drive their car to a park and ride and then take a transport vehicle that has higher occupancy, I think those are really exciting opportunities there. Before you even start your journey, you're going to be nudged and saying, you know what, the highway is really packed right now. It's going to cost 20, 30 bucks to use it. I can get you to the nearest train station and get you on a train for five bucks or 10 bucks and get you into the city. And then there'll be something waiting for you on the other side. That vehicle to vehicle and vehicle to infrastructure and vehicle to cloud technology will be able to facilitate dynamic route planning and avoid congested areas. All this will create more data-driven insights for traffic solutions, whether they are helping with congestion hotspots, potential areas for infrastructure improvement, looking at asset management, because it's going to use a lot of visual technology, we can actually see wear and tear on the roads. And all this comes back to insurance. We're going to see how to insure different systems, modalities, and infrastructure. And that's going to be very exciting. Fantastic. Thanks, Tim. On the other side of this break, we'll continue the conversation. So don't go anywhere. Loving InsureTalk with Laura Drabik? For more expert insights and inspiration, subscribe to Laura's email newsletter at drabikdigest.com, your one-stop resource for Laura's latest blog posts, videos, podcasts, articles, and more. That's www.drabikdigest.com. Now let's get back to the show. And welcome back. This is InsureTalk with Laura Drabik, and we're talking with Timothy Papandreou, founder and CEO of Emerging Transport Advisors. Right now, Tim, we have a situation where car manufacturers are investing over $600 billion in EVs through 2027. Yet the average stock of EVs on a dealer lot went from 52 days supply to roughly 100 this year in the U.S. And while demand was strong in Europe, high prices for EVs, stubbornly high interest rates, and other factors also become a drag. Tim, how might an economic downturn or just high prices slow down or maybe speed up the timelines we've been talking about today? I think it's basically shone a light on product market fit, especially on the F-150 Lightning. You know, Ford just announced they're going to cut back on their production. I think they've just missed the demographic piece in general. They've tried to make these really expensive, out-of-reach priced vehicles for the market. And the timing is just weird because survey after survey, market research after market research says that there's huge demand for EVs, just not $60,000 EVs. The issue, frankly, is our charging infrastructure is not up to snuff. It's nowhere near where it needs to be. There is not enough fast charge networks. And the ones that we have are poorly maintained. They're not reliable. So again, in that long tail at the 10-year trend, electrification is moving forward and charging fast ahead. Right now, we're in this weird space where we've got high-priced vehicles, high interest rates, and our charging infrastructure is not ready for what we need for this massive scale technology shift. As a Tesla owner, I have to agree with you about the infrastructure. I mean, we have an amazing experience, but I would never even look at another brand because of the infrastructure or lack of. Tim, how should businesses in the space think about these speed bumps? You know, I think the disparity between the strong demand in Europe and the challenges facing in the U.S. suggests that high prices and interest rates can be significant roadblocks. Different form factors that they have in Europe, they have much smaller vehicles that are much more affordable than we have here. We only have really high-end expensive vehicles here. So we're 
we're going to need to work with these organizations on understanding how they're going to expedite their efforts to make EVs more affordable. They're going to need to increase production efficiency. Tesla has basically changed their production system to increase the number of vehicles it can produce per day. That's going to dramatically reduce the cost. So not just making cars with better materials, but also making cars in general. We have to change that process as well. So businesses are going to have to maintain a long-term vision for this. They're going to have to focus on these immediate challenges. It's a very tough time, not going to lie, but it's really just the next two years. If they can weather these next 24 months, they're going to be on a road to really good recovery. In terms of V2X technologies, longer term mobility infrastructure and smart cities, there's the question of who's going to pay for all of this. Some will be built out by the private sector, but you've said the linchpin of mobility really is in the public sector. You've written about how cities like London, Singapore, Stockholm, and Milan address changing mobility needs. So walk us through a customer-focused, community-minded approach to mobility. You know, everybody's talked about being a smart city, right? No one wants to be a dumb city. So how do you a smart city in this world where we're increasing complexity. We need a systems thinking approach. And a lot of this requires the community to buy into this information and infrastructure and services and to use them. And so to do that, we need to understand whether we're referring from like a vehicle to everything, encompassing communication between vehicles, infrastructure, pedestrians, the grid. The governance implications are huge. You know, the public sector has to be involved and they're vital in setting these standards and regulations for the integration of all these technologies, which means that just like we're talking about insurance becoming a platform, government itself has to act become more like a platform and the infrastructure is a user interface on that platform and they have to understand how they create a fair marketplace that is safe reliable affordable accessible all the different pieces and that's not easy to do because infrastructure is long term it's it can't happen overnight right so it involves planning and developing infrastructure over years sometimes over decades but anticipating all that v2x technology that's coming in and the interplay between electrification and smart traffic management and connected infrastructure plan for them now and create flexibility and openness because what you don't want is you don't want to create situations where you've locked in technology and now it's obsolete before it even comes commercialized and the big scary thing that no one wants to talk about in the public sector is we need more public private partnerships and they are necessary not just for the financing and the executing of long-term infrastructure projects but to play key roles in understanding how we allocate assess and manage infrastructure to ensure that we get these outcomes that we want. For smart cities to truly be smart, they have to really make sure that the communities and the people are utilizing and leveraging this technology, but they have to be able to leverage the data and the tech to ensure that these systems actually work for the public. And that's a big deal. And then we have some really good models to learn from, like London's congestion pricing is an amazing model to learn on. Singapore's road pricing system, Stockholm and Milan now with their low emission zones, etc. All those things are really interesting and we can work on those using all the different V2X technology that you just talked about. Connect with the community, understand the data, the technology. It's something you know a lot about as Chief Innovation Officer for the City of San Francisco. I was so impressed with your experience and your leading of a team that envisioned and initiated the city's sustainable mobility revolution. You set a benchmark in the U.S. And sustainability is a through line in your work with Waymo and other public, private, and non-government initiatives around a smarter, more electric future. Tell us about San Francisco's sustainable mobility revolution and why it's uniquely personal to you. 
every now and then you get to leave an imprint on something. And I have to say that the thing that I did when I was at San Francisco, whether it was the head of strategy and planning and policy or whether it was the chief innovation officer, we really changed how government is perceived in delivering innovation. And what we did is we created a strategic plan that had hundreds and hundreds of action items to improve all the things that are broken in our urban fabric in the in the urban systems that we had, but to also create a benchmark of, well, where can we go with this? So, you know, what was the KPI or the global performance indicator? And it was mode shift. And we created this 50-50 goal of like 50% of all trips will be made by car and 50% of all trips will be made by walking, bicycling, transit, ride sharing, etc. And we basically made it simple because it was all about messaging. We said, okay, 50% private car, 50% will be called sustainable modes. And we reached that goal three years early in San Francisco because we did all of those actions, etc. And it gave two messages out to the public. One, the city's listening, you know, because we crowdsourced all of the information. We didn't develop it ourselves. And then we created this opportunity of creating like an urban laboratory. We tested things, we piloted, we made mistakes, we fixed them, we corrected them. We tried new approaches to getting the infrastructure out there, new models, new services, etc. And the public saw that not only is the city listening, but the city's trying new things and not everything works out, but we're going to work and iterate together. And that helped us really benchmark ourselves against some of those big cities that I talked about. Then all of a sudden, other cities started reaching out and saying, like, how are you working with this? How did you learn this? And then these national and international organizations came and did a lot of workshops with us. And we started to amplify what we had learned in San Francisco across the world. And I'm really proud to say that a good dozen of our innovations that we tested and learned in San Francisco now have permeated not just across the hundreds of cities in the US, but the thousands of cities across the world. And you really start to realize that just a couple of you together, a few champions, whether they are elected officials or whether in the advocacy space or internal champions in the city, when you have that trifecta of leadership coming together and really trying and learning things out, you do amazing things. And if we can do those things in one city, guess what? You can do them in many other cities and then effectively across the world. And why that's important for cities because more than half the world's population now lives in cities and three quarters will live in cities by the end of the next 25 years. And to me, that's where we can have the incredible impact. Learning from each other, implementing innovations, making huge impacts, not just for the people around us and the world that we live in and for opportunities economically, but also for sustainability, for climate action and for resiliency. And I think those are what's exciting and what keeps me going. And I'm really proud to be part of that. You should be proud. And a number of the concepts that you actually mentioned could be applicable in insurance as well. Just calling out crowdsourcing ideas, piloting the urban laboratory, and then benchmarking against other large cities. It's just incredibly well-planned and executed. Thanks for sharing. Tim, I want to thank you so much for your time today and for your incredible insights you've shown us. It's not just about ideas. It's about making ideas happen. You're so welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. Tune in next time for an all-new episode of Insure Talk with Laura Drabik, brought to you by Guidewire, the platform PNC insurers trust to engage, innovate, and grow efficiently. For more information, visit guidewire.com.